This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. Please click, subscribe, do all those things you do with your finger or your buttons. Shalom. Um, t- my son actually says the craziest thing. I have a son who's a genius. I mean, like literally a certified genius. And, and he's... And I'm not bragging about it. It's not a good thing. Okay, it's not good. You do not want to be a genius on this level. And um, and and by the way, the ladies in the back, if you want to s- go somewhere a bit, I mean, you just move your chairs a bit because I feel like I'm kind of pre- this camera is precluding your experience. So anyway, he he says to me that I don't understand why you even talk about the Big Bang, and and I'm like. I'm like, well, you know, if you look at the Earth, it looks old. You know, the world looks old, and and it doesn't just look old. But geologists will tell you, and and uh, paleontologists will tell you, and and physicists will tell you that it's 15 billion years old. And that's just the you know the evidence is in that the Earth is old. And he says, okay, well, maybe God made it look old. How do you know God didn't just make it look old? And I said, well, why would God do that? And he's like, well, because man needs free will. I mean, you can't... I mean, you, you have to have some kind of free will, whether there's a God or not. And and so if you can create a world that looks like it's just purely natural and that it just evolved, because evolution has, you know, certainly has a... You know, it looks like there's connection amongst the species and there is some kind of... You know, we do look much like every animal. Most animals have two eyes. Uh, I think every animal, maybe. Um, they generally have a sensor, like a nose. They, they generally have mouths and limbs and stuff like that. And so we, and you know, fish, if you get rid of the fins, you'll see there's like fingers inside their fins and stuff. And so it, it just looks likely. So my son was saying that God created the world with an embedded free will ability to, um, to, you know, keep the choice up there, and so that you get a sense that maybe there's, maybe it's old, and but maybe God made it in six days, and it it just, it's just set up that way so you can make a choice, uh, have a choice there. Now, I'm sorry, I I just maybe I'm not smart enough, but that just bothers me. Um, did that bother anyone here? Raise your hand if that bothers you. Right, so he would not. The question, the question that what's your name? Yehuda. The question Yehuda asked was, why would God put a stumbling block in front of us? And and my son obviously was saying it was not a stumbling block. I can see why you're saying it's a stumbling block, but God's saying it's not a stumbling block because if if the world was clearly made by me, you could never have free will of whether there's a God or not, and whether that should be informing your choices. Now, I believe that you still have free will. Even if God showed Himself right in your face, why? Because, because just because there's a God doesn't mean you're going to do the right thing. The only free will you get with God is the choice whether to believe in Him or not. So, which is pretty—that's no shabby commandment. I mean, that's a big one. That's that's considered, you know, it hit the top ten list. In fact, it got the number one on the top ten list. Is that there's a God at all? You know, so that, that it's definitely high on the high on the list of of. Uh, you know, heavy-duty commandments. So it gives you free will for that commandment. 
but it doesn't give you free will for the rest of them. Because even if God like literally like just gave you a flash of of pure revelation, you still have to live your day tomorrow and live according to the dictates that whatever your moral system based on God would be uh, dictating. You'd have to live that, and that would still be free will. But my son, I'm sure, would say that because the most important commandment of the whole Torah, I mean, you could just forget all the commandments and just go with the one commandment that there's a God, meaning to believe that there's a God or know there's a God if you hold by the Rambam, that that one's important enough. In fact, if you had to do one commandment, that's the one to do. And if you're not sure there's a God, well, go figure it out if there's a God or not and so that you can do that commandment because that's a biggie. And it's so big, actually, and he's not. he wouldn't be so far off if he said that because it's such a big commandment that that the um, that there are even our sages that say that doing commandments without clarity there's a God is worth nothing. It's worth nothing. Pretty scary. Pretty scary. And let me explain just how scary that gets. Because if it's just belief in God or not belief... Sorry, let's now apply the Rambam and the Ramban to it. The Ramban says it's enough to believe in God to fulfill the first of the Ten Commandments. The Rambam says, you, no, you got to figure it out. You got to go and do the research and figure out is there God or is there not a God to get to a certain level, what I call the, um, what I call a threshold of evidence. Okay, a threshold is the evidence. You have to get to a threshold of evidence and hit your threshold. Everyone's going to have a different threshold. And this is pure knowledge. This is knowledge. Okay, and and so you have to build your knowledge of God up to the to your threshold. Now, obviously, you know a skateboarding, cannabis-ridden, you know high school dropout is going to have a lower a lower threshold of calling something knowledge than a um, than maybe a guy with a PhD in physics. You know, maybe that maybe he would have a higher threshold. So it really depends on the person. To fulfill this commandment is really relative to the person at hand. And uh, some person doesn't need a lot of proof. Some people just notice how God keeps orchestrating things for them. And they're just like, there's a God, you know. You know, there's a God. Seriously. And they're not off. I don't think they're off. I think they're probably more on than anyone else. And they have a pretty low threshold because God's work. He didn't just orchestrate yours. He's orchestrating everybody's. I mean, someone just spilled a Coke on the hotel stairs, and there's a whole group of ants having kiddish. You know, <laughs> they, uh, you know, he's, he's orchestrating everything for everyone. You know, he's orchestrating the ants' kiddish, and I'm sure coming down the stairs right now is an aardvark, which is an ant aardvark. It's an anteater. Yeah, he's orchestrated a kiddish of ants for dinner. Yeah, so, so, so. But seriously, that like even a low threshold's fine. It, it's up to you. It's up to you. You know, you want to see God's hand in your life. It's up to you. Like for example, this whole class full of people. I mean, did all of you make a choice to come to Israel? Did everyone make a choice to come to Israel in this room? The answer is no. None of you made a choice. <coughs> I mean, at best, you could say you made the final choice. But there was so much... Think of all the things that had to happen. Who had to talk to who? How did your name get in the mix of this whole thing? And then somehow, like after God was like running this whole orchestration, someone put a microphone in front of your face and said, would you go? And you're like, yes. 
And obviously you said yes because you're here. So, so, and then, you know, they, and then they walked away and, and you were like, I don't like free choice. And God's upstairs is going like, yeah, good job. Good job. You, you had a zero chance of choosing anything else under those circumstances, which is why you're here right now. Because there was a zero chance you would have not come. Now, anyway, but these are the thresholds of evidence. But since we're on this, you have to understand there's a whole other issue at hand, and, and that is being intellectually dishonest. Because we're talking about knowledge. Well, if I know something to be the case, could I actually not know it? Could I not know something? Could I, could I give you proof of something and you still wouldn't know it? Yes or no? For sure. How would that be? Well, let's just take any example, uh, and I'll use one of you as my as my assistant. Anyone here willing to be picked on? Yeah, I know you're willing to be picked on. You're willing to pick on. Okay, I've already spoken to the two of you, so I'll start with him. What's your name? Arn. Arn in the back. How you doing, Arn? It's cute that you're uh, that you're offering because usually the guy who sits in the back is sitting in the back for a reason. So all the seats there. Okay, this dude's got a spot. But Arn, um, is there something you're particularly afraid of? Like, do you have a phobia of any kind? It's hard to put you on the spot. <laughs> Girls between the age of 18 and 20, just kidding. Um, <laughs> is it spiders? Is it airplanes? Is it, you know, do you have, you, maybe you don't. Okay, let's say you don't, but I'm going to give you one. Ready? It's nice to meet a fearless man once in a while. I train my kids in fearlessness, actually. Um, I, we do hardcore off-roading, so I was off-roading with my nine-year-old. And uh, it, it, there's part one of the downhill, part two of the downhill, and then part three of the downhill, which leaves you way down to the bottom of the mountains. But the, the sun had already set. It was way dusky. You know? And part two was already, I was at low visibility, and we're doing crazy stuff. I mean, this kid flew off his motorcycle a few times, and, uh, but he's in full body armor. I, I just don't want, I pause because I don't want to sound like the crazy dad, but he rides a motorcycle. So my nine-year-old, I bought it when he was eight. And he, um, no, children should be off-roading. It is amazing for children to off-road, and and especially with their dad. That is golden time, the two of us, and my other boys as well. Some of you are like thinking, well, you don't take your girls riding? I take my girls riding. Not (laughs) off-road. Not off-road. So um, I do have one daughter who's built for off-roading. She's like my tomboy, but my wife was like, don't feed it. Don't feed it, you know. Not in our Hasidic community. Like, she's not mountain biking, and I'm. I and I was cool with that. I was like, yeah, you're probably right. She'll just wind up suffering later, so she doesn't have to mountain bike. I'll take her on the bike path. Anyway, to a brewery. So <laughs> anyway, so so the, we're done with part two of the trail, and and little Surly, my little nine year old. It really was time to go back up because it was getting dark. And I said, what do you, what do you, but I didn't say, I could have said to him, it's, it's too dark to go do part three. Let's go home. That's what most parents would say. But if you're training your kids in not being afraid of anything, so you, you put it in their court. Because I know I can do part three with my eyes closed. This is my local trail. 
and he'll probably stack a couple more times. But he's so covered in armor, and he's so close to the ground already that he'll be okay. So, so I asked him. I said, "What do you say? Part three? It's pretty dark." And he's like, "For sure." <laughs> we did part three. He didn't stack. Okay, he stacked once, and and I, I, I waited for him at the bottom. <laughs> Back to cruel dad. <laughs> you know, you're like you weren't even with him. I was not with him. He's nine. You know, what do you want me to do? Ride with a nine-year-old? So I, I wait for him at the bottom of each section. You know, so so how you doing? Come on in. Yeah, there's, there's a seat right here if you want to come around. Come right around to there. So uh, you can sit in the back too, but it's more fun up front. Anyway, but let's just say uh, your first name is again. Aaron. Let's just say Aaron. Thank you. We got a fear. Skiing down double black diamonds, which you can imagine was my favorite thing to do when I lived in California. So, yeah. Okay, so, and do you do it? I ski a lot, but like last time I did the double black, I just like fell down the whole mountain. Yard sale. Yeah, you fell down the whole mountain in the double black diamonds. Have you ever done it again after that? No. You're done with that. You're done with that. So, Now, what if I told you I could teach you 10 techniques that you'd never have that happen again in a double black diamond? Going down a double black diamond? No. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say, but that was the longest digression ever that could have happened off me saying that what if I taught you 10 steps to never stacking down a double black diamond, which we call in skiing, we call it a yard sale. Because your gloves there, your poles there, your skis there, you're there like you know, your hats there, your goggles are there. You know, so what happens when you see someone stack like that from the chairlift? People yell "yard sale" as you're flying down the mountain. You hear someone yelling "yard sale," and you're just like somehow while you're tumbling down, you manage to like go like that to them. And they, anyway, so. But you, what was his answer when I said I could teach you how to go down those double blacks without falling? What was the what was his answer? Yes or no? Yeah. It was a no. Was evidence helpful for him? Let's say I proved those ten steps to him. Was evidence helpful? So here's the point I'm making in a really long-winded way, and that is that that once you introduce a fear factor, and I want everyone to get this now, once you introduce a fear factor, human beings go. Unintellectual. Once you introduce a fear factor on the, as you grow up the scale of MS, human beings get unintellectual. And what is the fear? What is your fear factor? And the answer is the fear factor is whenever there's something to lose. <laughs> this case, maybe your life. Certainly your skis and poles, <laughs> all the way back up the mountain. So. So you have something to lose. And when you got something to lose, the fear factor creeps in big time. And you get unintellectual. Un- I had a guy the other day who wanted to come to this class. He says, where is it? I said, it's the old city. He says, I don't go to the old city. So I gave him the exact explanation of how to get here through the Jaffa Gate and, you know, Jewish quarter, Jewish quarter, you know, you will live. 
through the Jewish court. You may eat too. And think he came? Think he was in class? He was not in the class. So you add the fear factor, you get unintellectual. And when it comes to knowledge of God, what's the fear factor? Meaning, according to the Rambam, you have to know. So, what's the fear factor? No, the fear factor of knowing. What's the fear factor of knowing? Well, let's put it like this, everybody. Let's make it clear like this. Uh, you got an answer? Yeah. Oh. You can what? I was just not expecting that as an answer. <laughs> Only because you've been doing all that stuff anyway and he doesn't kill you. So what about you knowing he's going to... Now he starts killing you because you know? So I think you're hot on that part. That your actions actually make a difference. I think that's a biggie. No, you know, that's I, have to, I think that's a biggie. There's no more random moves. You know, how many people want things to stay a little bit random? Right? There's no more random moves. If, if you know there's a God, nothing you do is random anymore. Everything's on a ledger. God's become a scribe. You know, he's just scribing everything you're up to. What do you want to say back there? It was, it was Similar thing? Um, it's just like, the more you know, the more responsibility you have. Like, knowledge is power. So that could be a good thing, because once you know, Okay, I, I would like to go rather than the power is knowledge is responsibility. responsibility yeah. Yeah, and we all know what Cheech Marin of Cheech and Chong said. He says responsibility is a heavy responsibility, man. Is a heavy responsibility. Yeah, that's a big factor. Let's put it like this, everybody. Let's switch it like this. Um, if you knew for 100% absolute five-finger clarity, it's called five-finger clarity because you can be pretty clear about that. Five fingers. So if you had five-finger clarity of God, is there anything you wouldn't do for God or avoid doing for God? If you had five-finger clarity. Meaning if I saw you doing something really stupid, you know, and I came up to you and said, how clear are you on the God subject right now? What would be the answer, most likely? You're probably a little fuzzy right now. You're like you're not in a, your clarity moment. This is why regret. You know what the definition of regret is? Because you better know, by the way, because Yom Kippur is coming pretty soon, and that's the re- that's regret day. And we have a day dedicated to regret. So, so you know what regret is? The definition is if I had the clarity then that I do now, I would never have done it. In other words, the only way you can do anything wrong is through staying fuzzy. Now, if you had total clarity of God, like five-finger clarity of God, is there anything you wouldn't do for God? The answer is, of course, I would do anything, and I would avoid anything I wanted to do if it was wrong. Therefore, stay fuzzy. Why? Because we all have this secret desire for autonomy. We all want some... We're all like... It's not a secret desire. I think it's a quite normal desire, and especially for Western 
humanity is we believe in our autonomy deeply. It's like considered of the greatest values of our life is our personal autonomy. And the second you say there's a God, well, your autonomy is in question now. And so we'd rather stay fuzzy and make all the good and bad choices that we do without having to deal with too much consequence. Because the second you, the second you know there's a God, automatically there is a surveillance camera in your bathroom. Now, does anyone want a surveillance camera in their bathroom? Absolutely not. No, thank you. No surveillance camera in there, and then the shower, and then the bedroom, and then the, and then in the dance club, like. No thank you for a surveillance camera. But think about it. Knowing there's a God means surveillance camera. And there's another thing. Knowing there's a God, and this is obviously a a subject of great debate, but knowing there's a God now leaves you in a position of, of, um, of deciding what that really means for your moral decisions. You know, if you're... Jewish, it's clear we've got a hell of a list of do's and don'ts. If you're a Gentile, which is 99.99% of the world, then you're, um, you know, then it gets a little strange exactly what's right and wrong, because just because there's a God doesn't let you know what's right and wrong. It depends probably on your tradition that you've adhered to. And hence, this is why you find more atheists amongst Jews. We way outdo Gentiles in atheism. Because, because for a Jew, and again, here I'm a little on more Ashkenazic Jews, that for Sephardi Jews aren't this bad. You got to leave it for an Ashkenazi to say the following is, is that there is so much you can get, do wrong. If you're Jewish, there's so much you can do wrong inadvertently in a matter of an hour. I mean, you can get, so, get yourself in so deep inadvertently without even trying to in one hour or in one year, a Gentile couldn't do all that wrong in a, in a lifetime. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons that we have Yom Kippur once a year. Why we get a reset <laughs> once a year. Because of the, you're just in so deep after a year. You need a reset. Because if the Gentiles complain and say, why do we not get a reset? Why do we have to die to get our scorecard? How come Jews get to like, get, deal with their scorecard once a year on Rosh Hashanah? And then, and then try to fix it by Yom Kippur? So the, and the answer is, is because the, the, there's just so much you can blow as a Jew. So if you're an Ashkenazi Jew, what you do is you just, well, let's see. We got to get rid of someone here. We can get rid of me for my behavior, or we can get rid of God so that there's no such thing as behavior that matters. We can get rid of one or the other. We can get rid of me, but I seem to wake up every day, so I'm, I seem to still be here. Well, I guess I'm not getting rid of me. Or I can get rid of God so I can live with myself. Now, Sephardim don't do this. Sephardim just, like, donate a wing to a synagogue or something. You understand? They're, they're smart. You know, they, 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 they just pay for it. You know, they're like... They're like, we're not getting rid of God because we feel guilty. You understand? God's not like up for grabs here. Like, we're not getting rid of it, which brings us back to the beginning of the class, which was that, that, um, 
that my son would have said that the commandment of that there's a God is so important that it's it's just the most important. And nothing really means much without it. So even all the mitzvahs you do without knowing there's a God is like, okay, yeah, it's nice. But, you know, it lacks context for any serious supernal reward. Are you wondering, by the way, why I just divided Ashkenazim and Sephardim? And by the way, some of you giggled. You know it's true. And I'll explain why. It's very simple. Ashkenazim have been living with, with heretics for 2,000 years. It, it rubs off. We're, we're living with serious non-believers for 2,000 years. Now, you might say, well, Christians are believers. Yeah, maybe on Sunday. <laughs> Maybe at Chris Mass, you know. But look at Islam, man. Those guys, I mean, they're flat on their face at Times Square. You know, four times a day they're praying. Five times a day they're praying. They're, they are, Sephardic Jews have lived amongst Muslims. And every day it's, you know, And you're hearing that your whole upbringing, you know, everywhere you go, everyone's just flat on their face, prostrating, prostrating. It's like, like God's not for sale here, you know, like after generations of that, you know, generations, years, you know, we're talking, it's been close to 2,000 years before they got involved with Western Jews. Sephardim can't figure us out either. You know, with our intellectual, like being so intellectual about God. I don't get the Ashkenazi intellectuality, but think who we've been with. Not only have we been with heretics for 2,000 years, we've been with philosophers. Philosophers. Spartans don't believe in philosophy. You know what they believe in? They believe in physiolosophy. Physiolosophy is, I'm only interested in this idea if I have a way to live it in my bones, you know. If, it, if I can somehow, like... <laughs> if I can just somehow embody this idea, it's interesting to me. If I can't, then it's mental masturbation. Which is all Ashkenazim seem to care about. You know, as long as, you know, I mean, they care about other things too, like good coffee and stuff. They care about croissants. The the amazing thing is, uh, if I can speak privately just for a moment, do you guys mind when I speak about myself for a moment? No. I do it sometimes, I'll do it for a moment, is is I'm, I'm not Sephardic, obviously. But I totally get them more than I get the Ashkenazi crowd. But I've been given, I've been given like, like a lot of Ashkenazi in me, for sure. And, but, but I really believe in physiosophy. And so when I hear debates, like I listen to a lot of the intellectual dark web and stuff, and I hear debates, sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel like, I don't know how to say it exactly, you know, it would be like Sam Harris versus Jordan Peterson or whatever. Sam Harris versus 
uh, what's that guy, the Jewish guy with the keep on his head? Ben Shapiro. When I, when I hear these debates, I, I understand the logic. I follow the logic. Like, I'm, I'm also Ashkenazic. You know, I can follow these discussions. So can Spartan, by the way. I'm, that wasn't meant to be that Spartan camp, but meaning I'm from the line of people who think their way out of, in and out of everything as opposed to feel their way in and out of everything. And, but I hear those arguments, and I, don't, I really I don't know how to articulate this, but I, but I know they're wrong sometimes. I know they're wrong. And, and, I, and I think I even know how to explain they're wrong, but I'm going to have to explain they're wrong in a way that... By the way, I'm not here to make anyone wrong. I don't want anyone to be wrong, but it could be what they're saying really could be harmful... Um, obviously, the atheist camp can say some things that I believe would be harmful, and the but even the believer camps can say things that leave gaping holes in someone who was more of a physiosopher would never have said. And it can be it can it it's a really talking head point that a believer might have said that that is that a philosopher would never have gone there, but if a philosopher could have been in the mix of that debate. He could have taken it down a totally different track. And, and I, I'm blessing myself to stand on that platform, on the world platform one day, to be able to articulate those things. Because I believe that's where people live. I believe that's where people live, really, more than anywhere else. And, and, and that it, it's got a bigger, I think it even will have a bigger reach if we can somehow articulate the physiosophy. And ideas that you can integrate fully inside of you, that they're not just ideas. Yeah? What would you say? Well, I need the scenario. Uh, What would be, someone can think of a scenario. Any of you guys listen to these debates? Yeah, what's what's a scenario? You know, there's also, I, I, I might have a lack of knowledge on this, but like, for example, the atheist camp, they always have to deal with morality. That always comes up, because that's the attack. The attack on the atheist is, why do you have a moral voice in your head? And so they would say, there's probably multiple answers. One might be Darwinistic, meaning, meaning it's just been genetically better to be good. Being good just preserves the race better. Now you could throw a million rocks at that one because you know you see, we've seen a lot of you know a lot of people do really bad things who are, should have been on the genetic high end of things and and have made terrible terrible mistakes, grievous <coughs> acts. And the uh, but another one of their answers might be that it's um, that socially socially it has a long term good effect. In that enough human enough of humanity would agree that soci- that it's good socially. It's whatever it is, meaning it's not really good. It has no intrinsic good. It's just that society works better when people behave in this particular way. And I've heard that said a lot. Like not killing, <laughs> or not stealing, or or maybe speaking nicely, or. Uh, or, you know, returning a lost object. I don't know. 
And it's just better to do that. And then you feel better, and then society feels better because there's an, another person walking around with positive energy because they just returned a lost object, even though they don't believe it's good. You understand? They don't believe it's a good thing to do. They don't because be- ultimately, on the serious, like razor cut atheism, is you can't call anything good or bad. That's what Darwin himself said. Darwin himself said, "You just got to go with you know, you know, like there is nothing but your desire at that moment." And they would say, "Well, you know, but being good will feel better because society works better that way. It's nice to return lost objects and." I mean, nice is already a value as well, but but society works better with people's objects staying in their originally owned position. <laughs> I.e., the guy who owns it should get it back. So, so what's the answer? So, you're, so what would my answer be? So, my answer would be: first of all, I would give that to them, hundred percent. If I were in a debate, you always in debate. One of the important things in debate is give them that. So, I would give them that. I would say, yeah, I think you're right. However, I believe that that in your heart, in your heart, you yourself know deep down that there is a right and there is a wrong action in your heart. Now, that's not very intellectual for me to say, but show me one human being on this earth who doesn't have that in their physiology. Show me one person who doesn't have You want to say Hitler? Well, go read his stuff. He thought he was ridding the world of an anti-Darwinian people, which is us. Because we, be- we believe having less is more. As we all know that one of our commandments is to give up at least 10% of your income, no matter what it is after taxes, obviously, but to give it up. Now, they could always say that, well, that's socially Darwinian in that it's good for society as a whole, but... That's not, that's not, you don't see that so much. I mean, you do see it a bit in the animal kingdoms that they're taking care of the tribe, but, but that'd be, it's a bit of a hard thing to pull off, to say that whatever that ant is doing right now is like, it, you're right, it is good for the whole tribe of ants, but, but it's really hard to argue that that particular ant had the tribe in mind. You understand? So, <coughs> so it's also the same with us, is that, is that, all of our, all of these choices deep down. I'm going to go back to my answer. My answer would be that we all have in our hearts a right and wrong. And when we do the right, we feel better. And when we do the wrong, we feel worse. And I want to say another thing that's very important, I think, for everyone listening right now. And that is that, that you think you have a challenge with keeping Judaism. If you're Jewish, I mean, there might be people here not Jewish, and obviously listeners who aren't Jewish, but you think you have a challenge, let's just say doing the right things. Forget all the fact that we have, we have about like 55,000 more laws than the Gentiles. But, so let's just call it right thing, and everyone who's Jewish should have in mind 55,000 laws. But you think you're having a challenge with that? I don't believe you're having a challenge with it. You know what I believe? I believe you're having a challenge being a person with well-being. Meaning that you have something called a misery comfort zone. Something that Eckhart Tolle, I call it the misery comfort zone in my work, but Eckhart Tolle in, in his uh, you know, manifesto called A New Earth calls the pain body. The pain body. And, and I call it the misery comfort zone. But if you feel better when you listen to the heart, 
you feel better when you listen to your heart and you feel worse when you breach your own inner contract, if you find yourself challenged with doing the right things, it's probably because you prefer misery. For whatever reason, you're addicted to pain. You still haven't gotten to the point where you eat right, and you exercise right, and, you, and you're just like... Your tolerance for less than great is, is, is high. Your tolerance for less than living an awesome life is high. Well, there are people who have gotten themselves out of that, and I'm one of them, who have gotten themselves out of that. And, and they, I, I don't have a lot of tolerance for less than well-being. And if that's really good, by the way, to have a low tolerance. A lot of people think they want a high tolerance for, let's say, stress. You don't want a high tolerance for stress. That's a good way to die suddenly at your desk at 55 years old. You don't want a high tolerance for stress. You want a low tolerance for stress. Anything stressful, you should notice it immediately before your body starts getting little, what do you call those things? <laughs> Clicks? What are they called? Twitch. Yeah, but there's another term for it. What? Ticks. Before your body's already getting ticks, you know. You should have a low tolerance for stress so that when there's something stressful, no matter how small it is, you can now look at that thing and say, am I even in the right, am I at the right party right now if I'm feeling this way? Maybe tonight was not a social night. And, and me sticking it out here, maybe I should just go up to, the, up to the person making the joyous occasion and give them a congratulations or a mazel tov and get the hell out of here because this is not the night for that. I need a hot bath right now because I've, I've been overdoing it and this, it was not the right choice. And so a low tolerance for stress Basically, a low tolerance for any lack of well-being is the goal. And it could very well be that your whole challenge with doing the right thing has nothing to do with doing the right thing. Who wouldn't want to do the right thing? You feel great. Every time you listen to that little moral compass in your heart, you feel great. You always feel great. Well, what if you did it again? What if you did it the next day? And then in the afternoon? And then in the evening, and then late at night before you went to bed, you did something good. And what if you did it the following day, and the following day, and the following day? Well, how would your life turn out? And what would be the cumulative effect for your life? And the answer is your life would be awesome. And you'd be infectious for others who would want to be, you know, just teach me the way, man. And the way isn't necessarily doing the right thing. The way deep down is the way deep down is lowering your tolerance for scrap without the S. But all of us, unfortunately, have a high tolerance for scrap to the point where we think it's normal. And we perpetuated ourselves, we attract it into our lives And I watch, I'm here 28 years, man. I've seen a lot of people come and go. You know, we, we hit, uh, last year we hit 200,000 people coming through this building. I've seen a lot of people in here over the years. 28 years worth. And 
I mean, you can imagine, I'm like, I'm like a YouTube algorithm watching who gets traction with their Judaism and who doesn't. Who gets traction, who doesn't. And I can tell you for sure that there's a direct correlation between people with a low tolerance for a lack of well-being. In other words, they have a high tolerance. Sorry, a low tolerance for a lack of well-being. What's a nice, either way of saying it, better way of saying it? Basically, they, they, their desire is well-being, and, they, and they're committed to it, <coughs> that there's a direct correlation from those people and them getting traction in a tradition that's, like, very demanding and expensive. Just ask me. I'm marrying off two of eight. Number two of eight this coming week. Everyone's invited. Well, thank you very much. I, listen, Rodney Dangerfield said the best thing about having kids is making them. So, the um, the I'll tell you the truth. You should clap. And my wife and I, when we marry off a kid, I'll tell you, we say Mazel Tov to each other in a totally different way. Totally different way because our Mazel Tov to each other is is that we took we took that newborn and handed her off at 20 years old to a man who's committed to holding her heart forever. And no man's ever held her heart except for me and her brothers. We're handing her off to someone who's going to hold her heart forever. Committed to Torah and mitzvahs with joy. A Pilates instructor. An interior designer, meaning meaning we we took an, a, I mean it was originally a fetus, but I mean we took this infant all the way. Oh my gosh, my my in law, he's calling to say, oh my gosh, my watch still thinks I'm doing yoga. Um, <laughs> a great yoga session. Anyway, <laughs> five hour yoga session. So. But listen carefully to this. Listen carefully to this. The word in Yiddish for son-in-law, this is going to freak you out. The word in Yiddish for son-in-law, anyone know it? Son-in-law? Anyone know it? It's Adim. Adim. The word for son-in-law, it's not really Yiddish, it's Hebrew. The word for son-in-law in Yiddish is Adim. You know what that means, Adim? What's the word Edut mean? What are Adim? Witnesses or testimony. Son-in-law's testimony? Like, what? What is that? What's the connection? And this is why my wife and I say mazel tov to each other. It's because of son-in-law's testimony you took care of your daughter. That's what a son-in-law is. Like, boom. Son-in-law's testimony you took care of your daughter. Daughter-in-law? Just a headache. <laughs> competition. Daughter-in-law's competition. You know, my wife was friends with my mother before she became my wife. They were friends. My, my wife was my mother's madrucha on a program that was called Israelite. And she was her madrucha, and they really got tight until I married her madrucha. 
at which point it was pure vicious competition for my attention. And I was like, what happened all of a sudden? So you know what I did? I did this. I've done this with a few people. Is I took them. You can try this at home, by the way. I took the two of them and I put them in a room and locked the door from the outside. And right before I shut the door, I said, you'll leave as friends. But you're not coming out of there until then. Oh, you could have... I mean, I wish I had a recorder just for the tears and the, everything going on in there. And, and, uh, and, and I was like, after a while, I was like, I think I need to bring food. <laughs> so I just like quickly unlocked and like put a couple sandwiches on the floor and like closed it and locked it. And, but the two of them have been like, like best, <laughs> best friends since that, since that day. I mean, I was not going to let them out of there. They had to talk it out. Anyway, when the fear factor hits, so we get intellectually dishonest. I went way deeper than that today. Way deeper than that. But just in conclusion, I just want to go a little deeper on that. And that is that, what is the number one fear? And we got a couple takers, Joseph, and uh, what's your name back there? Eris, we had a couple takers that, you know, now it means like I got to do this stuff and et cetera. And we spoke that out. But, but I want to go even deeper is that if you have to do that stuff, well, then your lifestyle is going to shift. And if your lifestyle is going to shift, the people who are more important to you than your lifestyle, i.e., the people who make you feel like you're not just a piece of garbage, are going to get upset that you've changed your lifestyle. And so you wind up on a scale of like, you wind up on a scale of like, of like, I can do the right thing and lose my support group. Which is, and the craziest thing about this is the closer they are to you, the more they get upset. Meaning, meaning if acquaintance finds out that you shifted your lifestyle, an acquaintance, what do they say? Good for you. The closer they get, the more they are threatened by your shift in lifestyle and you become threatened to lose your support group. In other words, more important to you than truth, more important to you than the search for knowledge and truth and reality and is there a God, is there not a God, is Torah truly prophecy or is it man written? Like All that search means nothing compared to someone saying to you how much they love you or how beautiful you are or what an amazing, you know, whatever. Whatever you get out of your having your family be patting you on the back is more important to you than truth. And until you recognize that, your search for truth is stunted. Your search for truth is a joke. Until you get real with the fact that your search for truth isn't real. Your search for truth is, is, is back to philosophy. It's, it, is, it is a... I'm not going to say that again, what I said about mental. We'll just call it MM. Yeah? Your search for truth isn't really true. Because if the answer in the end of the search was there's something called truth, and you had to change your lifestyle as a result, your issue isn't changing your lifestyle. If you won the lottery, your lifestyle would change a bunch, and you'd love every minute of it, and so would your family. But if your search for truth leads to losing your family's Adulation. Well, you'd rather have their adulation than truth. 
And if you're wondering why the world's so screwed up, well, I just explained it. Thank you very much. Shalom. I do, oh, wait, wait. Uh, two more things. Two more things. I hope you enjoyed that. Two more things. Three more things. Uh, one of those things is um, four more things. Uh, if you like this, subscribe, share. Please let your friends see it. Uh, another thing is, um, is there is good news, by the way, that if you freak your family out on your search for truth and you found truth and you switched your lifestyle and they freaked, you should know they all come back in the end because they start to realize later that you're just, you're still their kid or you're still their sister or their brother. They all come around. It takes about a year or two. They all come around because blood's thicker than values in the end. The family, the family blood will last longer than your, than your new lifestyle. Meaning, not that you're going to lose your lifestyle. It's just that they're going to, they're going to just get over themselves. And, uh, especially when grandkids come around. Um, the, the other thing I want to say is that this rabbi over here feeds a family every Shabbos. He's going to go around with, he's got, uh, <laughs> he feed, he takes on himself to feed a family in Jerusalem every Shabbos. This class feeds them. If it folds, it buys like fish or meat. Hollas, if it jingles, it'll buy drinks. Stuff like that. And, uh, and the, and it's nice to have Shabbos knowing that there's a family eating partially because of you. Um, so that's the rabbi over here. And, and that's Thursday's, Thursday Sadaka. And the, the other thing was, uh, oh, is Rabbi Ellis is teaching now. What are you teaching? Oh, another rabbi is teaching. You know what he's teaching? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.